since we're starting a message, well, I don't know if I have what it takes to preach on the book of Romans. I listened to a John Piper sermon recently on Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and he said, <laughs> and he said, um, for 12 or 15 years, he's thought about preaching through Romans, and, and for this reason or that, he's shied away or backed away, knowing it, he just wasn't ready for it. So I guess this is an invitation to read Romans, and uh, I had to bring out the big Bible for this. Um, Romans is a letter. It was written to a church by a man named Saul, or Paul. We'll talk about him. Um, in his greeting, he identifies himself, and in the style or format of ancient letters, then he uh, identifies the addressee, the, those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to belong to Christ Jesus, to Jesus Christ. And then he tells them what he's been praying for them. And then he launches into a doctrinal treatise that lasts uh, about 14 or 15 chapters. And then he closes with something that looks like a letter as we know it. So, I don't know if we'll get through the book of Romans, but we will at least start. And uh, so this is important. Um, many have called this letter the greatest work written of all time. Many lives have been transformed by this, including my own. Uh, I can remember when my mother told me about growing up in church and then going away to Bible college, all, of these, all this Christian influence in her life. And then she said, and that's when I read the book of Romans, and it changed me forever. And I grew up going to church and went away to Bible college. And when I was at Bible college in my third year, I found Romans chapter 9. Or God located, he had, he had known right where I was. He was just catching up to me, I guess. And, uh, and, uh, and he opened my mind to understand the scripture. And I went from doubter and rebel to more of a worshiper and servant who had something in my heart that God put there as I studied these passages that made me love him and trust him. And that is our goal. And I hope you have as powerful an experience reading the book of Romans in the coming days, weeks, or months as I have, and more so. Augustine's was converted to Christ when he read Romans, and his life was forever changed. And he was a pillar in the church for all of the centuries since. Um, Martin Luther was converted in the Protestant Reformation, a much-needed reformation in a relatively dead Christian church, was sparked as Martin Luther poured over the book of Romans and was convicted of his sin and that righteousness is not his, it's Christ given to him by faith and that changed everything. In fact, it changed the world. In fact, Western civilization was built on more on what came out of that than I think on anything else. Is that accurate, historians? We're getting some relative nods. Um, John Wesley, he, 
his life was completely transformed as he read the book of Romans. And he planted churches that have numbered in the thousands and thousands and thousands as, as his testimony and the gospel that he found in the book of Romans spread throughout the world. And he left uh, a powerful legacy of faith. This message is called, How We Find Identity, Belonging, and Righteousness in him. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's read it and then get into it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Can you feel the love of God in these words? Praise the Lord. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I think one of the most common prayers I pray is for those uh, several men at GCF and in India who, uh, who I meet with regularly. I'm often you know who you are. I, I am regularly saying thank you to God for your faith and praying that he would add to it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's doing in you. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul had that kind of relationship with this congregation, even though he hadn't met them face to face. What a wonderful, giving, fatherly kind of person. Like that his heart was so full of gratitude and affection for them. This is the tone with, which, with, with which Romans 1 begins. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So, of course, this congregation has, uh, is, a diverse, uh, is diverse ethnically, and uh, it appears there are a lot of Gentiles there. Paul uh, was born in a Gentile uh, uh, city, and he went to study under this high-caliber rabbi uh, who had a rather extraordinary reputation and uh, 
who what we think we know from church history hated Christians. And uh, that was, uh, if that's the case, that was certainly imparted to his student, Paul. Um, and Paul was uh, like hyper Pharisee, hyper, uh, like, like his Jewishness was everything to him. His purity, him being pure and doing all the right things, that's what, and, and being born, you know, into the right class and family and order was, was like his identity. That's who he was. But we'll get back to that. As well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So for him to even like be talking to Gentiles is like a major change. Why? What? What on earth happened? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's all we'll have time to read today, I think. So let's go into it. First, he's writing to the Romans, right? So Rome, it's the capital of the empire. This is the time of the great Roman Empire, now lost to the sands of history, although its legacy continues in culture, thought, and education, and values. And uh, there's a lot of Rome in the United States, uh, for what that's worth. So, the Romans divided the world into two people groups, Roman citizens and strangers. The Greeks, who had conquered the Mediterranean world, then over-conquered or conquered uh, afterwards by the Romans, taken over by the Romans, um, the Greeks, whose, whose Hellenization or Greekification, uh, Greek culture, thinking, way of life, you know, even that they have like uh, gymnasiums and theaters, like those, those are like Greek things. And of course, we have a lot of Greek thinking, culture, life, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and the, the, we have a lot of that in us. Uh, some of that is unfortunate, some of it is good. The Greeks divided the whole world into two people groups, Greeks and barbarians. I want you to go like this with your tongue, go like They thought everybody else talked like that, so they called them barbarians, right? If you think of barbarians, if you've watched lots of, I don't know, ancient history, military movies or something, uh, unthink a little bit of what you think barbarian means and think, um, think as a Greek, think everybody's like that. They all, have, they all talk funny and, and they're all just what we think of barbarians in the traditional sense. They're, they're just classless, cultureless, wisdomless, right? So that's how the Greeks thought of the whole world. And, uh, and the Jews, and then we have our friends, the Jews. Um, the Jews divided the whole world into two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. What? Did you say? Not Jews. 
Yeah, that's what Gentiles means, right? Non-Jews? So Jews and non-Jews. Okay. All right. So we have a little bit of classism here. We have a little bit of racism here. The reason we have that in every country and every culture is because every culture and every country is made of, well, us. And we have what Paul calls the flesh, what, uh, what some people uh, uh, kind of describe as the sinful nature. And what we have begun to embrace in this congregation in our repeated analysis of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So raise your right hand and say, Nothing lies like my heart lies. <laughs> That's Bible. That's just basic Bible. There's no good news. There is no gospel unless you believe that. And to the extent that you embrace that, which is totally counterculture in this country's culture, in fact, it's quite the opposite. In fact, everything in Roman one, Romans 1 is the opposite of American culture. Almost everything is almost exactly the opposite. And to the extent that you become less culturally or in mindset, Greek, Roman, American, Indian, to the extent that you become less worldly and more biblical in your thinking, to that extent, the gospel will transform your life. Now, we're going to look at this man whose life, well, you know him, but we're going to read. We have 15 minutes. It's going to take at least 10 minutes to read these passages. Let's read Galatians 1, 1 through 16. Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Paul, and we thank you for making him a kind of a prototype and forefather for us, both in his life experience and in your wonderful and rich demonstration of your grace to him, the chief of sinners like us. Galatians chapter 1, I said 1 through 16, but I meant to say 11 through 16. Galatians 1, 11. This is Paul. So we're going to learn a little bit about Paul. Here's one of our first four, three passages about him, five. He's writing this in a letter to this other church in Galatia. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, the good news that was preached by me, is not man's gospel. You know, it's like it's not a bunch of cleverly devised myths or, or thoughts, wisdom that man made up. Because honestly, who would make up a philosophy who would make up a religion that says there's no hope for any of us unless we embrace I'm a wicked sinner and there's no righteousness available for me anywhere in the world or by any achievement, attainment, education, in culturalization, learning, or, or propitiation that I can possibly do or can be done on my behalf. Apart from this only one, there's only one way to the Father, and it's Jesus. And only Jesus can get us to the Father like a ladder or a staircase, except really he comes down and gets us and takes us up to heaven. And that's the message of the gospel. Well, that's kind of dumb, don't you think? Isn't that kind of foolish? Well, that's what the Greeks thought. That's foolishness. He said it in Corinthians, right? The Corinthians who are Greeks, right? It's like this. It's actually my favorite city in Greece. I love Corinth. Um, um, Galatians, so this gospel is not man's gospel, because really, just think logically. Think about your, 
your disagreement or your philosophical doubts about Christianity, why would anybody make this up? I would make up a religion that says, we're all gods. And perhaps somebody else would make up something a little different. And that's the religion of America, the predominant religion of America, that there's a divine light or an internal inborn goodness, not neutrality, but goodness, that there's that goodness within all of us, and I've just got to be free to express myself. I've just got to be unshackled. We've got to get rid of the, clear out these authorities by whatever means necessary. I've got to have sexual freedom. I've got to have intellectual freedom. I've got to have gender freedom. I've got to have, uh, like, I, like, you can't tell me who or what I am, right? That's this generation. That is the religion of our generation, or maybe, well, that's the, the Generation Z, right? That's, uh, but it's, it's an unbridled freedom to express myself. And the generation before that, if you were born between approximately 1981 and approximately 1994, then you're a millennial like me. And uh, if you're a millennial, you might be described as being, I hate to say it, selfish. That's kind of millennialism in a nutshell. We're all about me. It's just a little different than that massive, unbridled need to express myself. Neither of those things are very, well, adult-like or very, uh, they don't point us to Christ and they don't lead us to salvation and we have to become un-that to be saved. And to the extent that we are saved from those sins, then uh, to that extent we lay hold of, enjoy, appreciate, fellowship with Christ and his people. Okay, we gotta get through this. This is going to take forever. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And without a revelation of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and, called, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he goes on. I've got to see. I've got to read more about that. That's awesome. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's a wonderful man of God. He's a servant of servants. Everybody loved him. A lot like, or Stephen, a lot like Stephen, except more so. <laughs> a lot like Stephen Leopold, but, but really wonderfully filled with the Spirit. And, um, and Stephen preaches a sermon to these uh, people who are like Paul. In fact, it's a group of Paul's guys. He's one of them. He's there. And he says, 
Well, he preaches the sermon, and when they heard these things, they were enraged, verse 54, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That means they threw and piled rocks at him until he was dead. And the witnesses laid down their garments. They took off their coats so they could throw the rocks faster, I guess. And they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Oh my gosh. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. That blasphemer. And there arose on that day a great persecution against all the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if, if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven. Think about everything Nathan's been preaching going through the book of John. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling. I don't have a slide for this. I mean, they, it's, you're just reading scripture. They should be able to keep up. Okay. There's there several verses behind you. Thanks. Got it? Thank you. Thank you. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? This is this guy who's been zealous for something, someone, and apparently... Apparently, as he's getting knocked off his high horse, quite literally, apparently, he's got it very, very wrong. He has been reverent. He's been zealous. He's been pure. He's shunned. He, like the Pharisees would do, he's taken his beautiful Pharisaical robes, his like super nice suit, we could say, and he wraps it tightly as he goes through the marketplace. Have you watched The Chosen? Do you see them do this? And that's good. And, and he, he doesn't want to touch a Gentile because Gentiles are dirty. They're actually dogs, right? He doesn't want to touch another Jew who isn't like really pure and clean. He doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to, he, he can't, he can't fellowship with anything dirty because he is clean. 
Have you ever thought that way? Yes, you have. I have. I have often, over a number of years, more in the past than recently, thank God, but haven't you often had thoughts like, oh, they're unclean, and you kind of wrap your little garments around you. What's, what's it going to take for Paul to open up his heart to these Gentiles, these, these non-citizens, these barbarians, these, these non-Jews? What's it going to take? In this moment, as the light shines around him, he's on the ground. God has caused him to fall off his horse, his fall, out of, fall off his ride, and he's there, and he's in the presence of God like Moses was. And he knows it. He doesn't know God, but he knows the presence of God because his presence is unmistakable. And like Moses took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground when the all-consuming fire drew near to him, yet did not consume him. He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. If you're reading along in the King James, the next verse is rendered, and he trembled and astonished, and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. ESV, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Don't ever forget this. Paul said, what would you have me do? He said, what do you want me to do, Lord? The moment you say that, you get saved from your sin. That is salvation. To be saved from me to you. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And the good news that Paul received was that God wasn't going to turn on him what he deserved and pile rocks on him, and bind him in chains, and carry him away to prison. Actually, all of those things were going to happen to him. And he said, count it all joy, actually, Peter said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith. Praise the Lord. So here is Paul, and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that, if you take away anything from this, is the only way to follow God. Amen. Forget the debate over lordship salvation. Just forget it. Lay hold of this, because this is Bible. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's good theology. Anything other than that is not good theology. Just forget it. Okay? You know what the debate over lordship salvation is? Who's heard of it? One, two, three, four. Okay. Right. The, the debate over lordship salvation is, I was saved. I, I answered the call of God. I went to the altar. I confessed that I have sin, or perhaps I'm a sinner even, and I asked him to save me from hell and forgive my sins, and now my destiny is heaven. And now I'm, I'm clean, I'm a saint, I'm good. 
That's a slice of the pie. The whole gospel is bigger than that. That is good and that's included, but it's bigger than that. Paul got the whole gospel all in one dramatic encounter with God. And he cried out, Lord, what would you have me to do? And he became a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He became a willing, lifelong, committed, no going back servant. You know what they used to do to slaves? Well, you, slavery, we have, a, we have a, a very painful history with slavery in this country. Let's set that aside in your mind. In the ancient world, if you owed a debt, let's say I owe, $450,000 to uh, Bethany. Um, I don't have $450,000. I don't earn $450,000 anytime soon. What am I going to do? Uh, I got to pay my debt. So I'm like, all right. Um, so I go to her whatever family, and I was like, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for you for seven years. And then can we call it, can we call it even? Like seven years, and so we, we shake hands, and then I'm now the household servant. So I wash the dishes, I shine the shoes, I mop the floor. I, if, if there are children, whatever, I take care of anything, I shovel the, I, I feed the, whatever, whatever needs to be done, you just, you just say it, I got it. I'm the servant, right? It was, it was more like a job than like American slavery, usually. You know, there were, there were tragedies there, you know, I mean, humans aren't perfect, right? But, but there were a lot of indentured servants who, uh, who it was a job, but it was a 24-7 job. Have you ever worked as a personal assistant to somebody in our congregation? It's a 24-7 job. <laughs> and so, so no, no, but it's really not, because if you've been in that position, you don't get many calls at night. Um, but the, bond ser the, the servant in biblical times uh, would have. You, anything, like you're the servant, you're, you owe it to them. So. So then there's this thing called a bond servant. And that is how Paul introduces his letter. He says, because of what you did for me, I'm your bond slave. So they had this tradition. They would go over to the, the doorpost of the house. I don't know if the camera's turned. All right, pretend there's a door. Pretend I'm standing in the doorway. It's right here. There's the doorpost. And you'd take your ear, and you'd stick your ear up on the doorpost, and the master of the house would say, are you sure you don't want to be set free? And I'd say, yes. He'd say, are you sure you want, to be, you want to bind yourself to me as my servant? You want to become my bond servant? It's for life. There's no going back. And that's gospel. That's the gospel that if you haven't embraced, I hope you do. But you have to re-embrace this every day. Because let's face it, we have the flesh. And they would take their ear to the doorpost of the house and... and uh, and drill it to the house so a drop of your blood would get on the house. You were bound to that household. And then you get an earring, and that's your bond slave. That's your bond servant earring. So unusual ear piercing ceremony, but nobody ever forgot it because you can't not be a bond slave anymore. Paul says he became a bond slave of Jesus Christ that hour. But we have to read on. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What do you want me to do, Lord? Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Figurative, literal. He's just beginning to recover from a lifetime of blindness and deadness and hardness of heart. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's some serious fasting. I have fasted for, I think I've gone three days before with like nothing to eat. But I'm not like a powerhouse faster, but I fast frequently. You know, there's a lot to pray about. But I've never gone a day without water. I've definitely never gone two days without water, and I've definitely never gone three days without water. That can actually be life-threatening. They say that a person has maybe up to seven days to live without water, and that's it. You can't survive longer than that. Hmm. He was doing some serious fasting. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Point of order, Lord. Uh, excuse me. Um, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. God is omniscient. I love this conversation. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, I bet he was thinking after that conversation with God, I bet you he was still thinking, as soon as he opens my eyes and realizes I'm a Christian, I'm dead. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Baptism is like, because you're you get buried underwater. You know, there's sprinkling and there's immersion. But you, get, but you go under the water, right? It's like going underground, because when you're dead, they bury you. And he was buried with Christ in baptism and raised up to newness of life. And taking food, he was strengthened. Um, I want to read more, but I think we have to wind down here for now. I think we have to wind down here for now. Boy, that's a bummer. I'm just winding up. We'll read more about Paul next chance we get. Paul's identity is servant. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus says to you today, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You know what I'm talking about. It's the opposite of the me generation. When you come to Christ, your goal is to give up your wants 
your ambitions, your goals. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant, my servant also will be. Jesus, who is our pattern and example in all things, himself said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Our identity, if we have come to him, even to the extent that we have come into fellowship with him, is servant. It's bond servant. When you come to Christ, your goal is to give up your wants, your ambitions, your goals. And I don't say that harshly. I say that sensitively because I have often been through the baptism of sacrifice and I have given up much and it's, and it's painful. Um, this is a call to die to yourself, to die to your need to express yourself, to die to your need to have a good reputation, your need to be liked, and especially to die to self, laying down your life, your whole life, with all your wants, goals, possessions, dreams, handing it all to the Lord Jesus and saying with Paul, what do you want me to do? God wants to take an axe, not to the tree of self that is growing out of the soil of your life. He doesn't want to take a, an axe to the root. He wants to take a stump grinder to the root. <laughs> There's a root of self growing out of the soil of your life. God wants to destroy it. He wants to uproot it with, with, with no, what do you call those? Who, I need a botany student here. What do you call the no tendril, the things that grow up and they sprout elsewhere? None of that. Like, he wants to take a stump grinder to this root in you so that it, the tree can never grow back and the wood chips become fertilizer for what God is planting in its place. Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. My story is that that was me. Paul's story is that that was him. To what extent is that you? Psalm 81. Verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them up to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. That's what we're going to read about if we ever get to the second half of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed, against, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Oh, that my people would listen to me 
This is a message to this church. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat. That's bread. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Jesus said, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, and let's have the communion servers come forward at this time. You can come now, please. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Please come.